Hi, this is Andrea Borcha. And I'm Charles Wilchin. This is Far Stuff. The Internet of Things podcast. This week on Far Stuff, we explore... Low-level standards. This is probably going to be one of many episodes on standards. It's a exciting new realm we're getting into with the Internet of Things, but... The only solid way for it to grow into anything is if we have some basic standards. It's the same way that the internet became what it is today. There's a whole wide world of standards uh, that are used on the internet today that still are equally applicable to the internet of things. Sure. And yeah. I'd like to talk about those. I think that's a good idea. Uh, I know that the IETF, Internet Engineering Task Force. Yes, uh, which strongly influenced the definition of the standards for the internet as it is right now, has already started looking at this stuff and uh, trying to define which standards. Th their argument seems to be that a lot of the standards they've already defined for the internet are perfectly relevant for this web of things. That's what they like to call it rather than the internet of things. The oh, web they're of such things. contrarians. They, you know, they have to define it their own way. And, and I would agree with them. I mean, really, these are not uh, unique in the sense that we already have a, a proven network that scales really well, that scales not only to, you know, slabs of silicon sitting on our desks, but also things in our pocket. Uh, so I agree with them. And uh, I support their efforts, though, to extend those in any way they can to make the Internet of Things work better. Absolutely. I, I think everyone's trying to get to this place. Cisco also has a conference that they just did and I think they're trying to do make it an annual where people come together to discuss standards for the internet of things and how we're going to make everything smarter and actually able to communicate with other smart things yeah and there's some interesting things that were um, started for the web in fact that will be really um, useful um, if we can make those happen things like the semantic web where you're describing not only um <clears throat> kind of the atomic levels of things, but on a higher order, what they mean. It's like, this is not just a photo. This is photo of your grandmother and she's related to you in this way. So there's, there's sort of a higher level description of, of things and how things work and how they communicate and how they relate. That would be really useful for the internet of things. So how do you think that falls together with, I mean, I think with the nest thermostat that mm -hmm. it's very clear what it is and, and what that, those semantic rules would be, but you know, adding a tablet basically embedded in your fridge, mm -hmm. uh, just just how does that work, do you think, with those semantic rules of what is a fridge and how do you use it and how do you actually make it part of this web of things? Yeah, that's um, it's a hard question um, to come up with some sort of argot to describe what everything is and its role related to everything else is just non-trivial. Um, so I think that's one good reason that Early on in the standardization of the Internet of Things, people that have a proprietary system of things that work together might have an advantage. So if you're Nest and you have a proprietary way for uh, your uh, smoke detectors to talk to your thermostat, in the short term, I think you'll win. Uh, in the longer term, standards always win. Uh, things need to work together. As the stakes get higher, as the industry gets bigger, as more and more people's livelihood depends on these things, um, all working together, uh, the appeal of standards is too great to ignore. 
Now, probably, and this is my guess, is that these standards will come about because the larger players in the market will start defining things. And I think it'll be a jump on board with what's already taking over or not. So Google just bought Nest. So mm-hmm. I'm sure they're going to become a significant player. Cisco at, uh, at CES this year came out and very blatantly staked their claim in the Internet of Things. Yeah. So with these large behemoths coming at, at each other and uh, defining what they think the Internet of Things should be and, and the standards sh- sh- they should, everyone should use, um, how does that fit in with like the smaller players like Zigbee? All those devices, for example, the, the uh, Nest itself uses Zigbee, okay. as does the Philips Hue light bulb. You don't hear them touting that because it's not a consumer benefit. So it's nice in that these standards have allowed there to be hardware that's mass produced, that's very inexpensive, that Internet of Things developers can use to make great products. But um, right now, until these things become kind of a consumer asset and until one of these standards becomes a household name in the sense that, oh, I know I need to buy this thing because it has the Zigbee label on it and it will work with my other Zigbee things then you won't hear much about it. It'll just be plumbing, which is what it should be. Interesting. So I can see Google going down that route, right? It's, it's Google, empo- Google powered like Android, which would, and Google tends to have a philosophy from all I can tell about trying to be much more open than for example, Apple. Well, like every corporation, they're two faced about it. And I don't even mean that in a pejorative sense. I just mean that there's two sides to the equation, which is Yes, they want to be standards-based where there's an advantage for them as a company, um, but they, you know, they often mix it up. For example, Android is, um, much of it is open source, but much of it is proprietary. So if you're uh, someone like Samsung and you want to take Android, but you want to get those Google apps like the Google App Store or like YouTube, those are all proprietary bits that actually sit on top of or work with the core Android open source stuff. So it's kind of a mix. Uh, Apple II is the same way. They're not giving away like AirPlay as a standard. They're keeping it proprietary. They're keeping it under control. They're licensing that to people as they want to use it. And they're big enough that they can kind of do that. But if you're a small player, you're really highly motivated to uh, use standards like uh, DLNA, for example, that, that offer an AirPlay-like experience. But then the problem is that... Um, how do you get consumers to recognize that as something that benefits them? It's tough. So I think we've already kind of thrown out a couple terms that uh, not all our listeners probably know. So Zigbee, DLNA. Yeah, DLNA. And uh, so why don't we go through some of these? Great. So which which is which one? We'll start in this order. Which one do you think is the most prevalent right now? Standards is like a, a lovely seven-layer cake. These uh, standards layer upon each other to let you do cool stuff. At the very core, let's talk about the Internet Protocol Suite. The Internet of Things gets its name, obviously, in part from <laughs> this, the these four protocols, right? Hey. And at the heart of this is IP. IP is the primary protocol of this Internet layer. It is the heart of Internet communication, and by extension, it is the heart of Internet of Things communication as well. Its job is to deliver packets from the source to a destination based on the IP addresses in the packet headers. So imagine millions and millions of these packets 
going across the internet, um, going to everything, being sorted through routers. Um, so what's the, the value really of this? these envelopes? What, what do they carry in them? They carry data. The unit of data is called a packet. Uh, the packet is um, a stream of bytes, and it consists of a header and a body. The body is like the data inside the envelope, and the header is like the envelope and the address. So this is really relating back to the communication part of our definition of Internet of Things. Uh, you may remember that we've defined the Internet of Things as having three main areas. One, it needs to compute. Two, it needs to connect. And three, it needs to communicate. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the standards really is to make sure that communication happens effectively because you can get something that connects to the world around it, computes the value of what's going on around it or what's relevant, and then having it actually be able to communicate out is, is the tricky part where you need the standards. Absolutely. Yeah, and IP is really the atomic level of communication for that. Now, here's some fun things about it that you may not know. Ooh, IP sounds fun. It, well, it's very tiny fun. It's connectionless, which means that each packet has no idea that it might be part of a larger communication. Is that because of the body that sent it out? Is separating it out? Well, the fun thing is that it's used in, in combination with other standards that um, can both use this IP thing in different ways. So here's a couple aspects of it. IP delivery, IP packet delivery is done at a quote unquote best effort level. It is inherently unreliable. Well, that doesn't sound like a good start. There's no guarantee that the packets may be delivered at all. There's no guarantee that they are valid. They may be corrupted. They may be duplicates. They may come out of order. There's something on top of that called TCP. Okay, what's that? Have you heard of TCP IP? Yes. Yes, you I've have. I've seen that somewhere <laughs> yeah. at some point. Those two things work together. Sounds like a great drug, doesn't it? <laughs> TCP IP. It's yep. probably, yeah, it'll probably be used as, as the name of something in the future. Yay uh, for nerds creating drugs. Yeah. TCP is layered on top of IP to provide um, accurate delivery of information. It's Sounds another important. one of the. It's super important. It's another one of the core protocols. It's so common that. You've seen it in print. Often the entire suite of protocols is called that. So it, it delivers reliable, ordered, and error-checked delivery of information. And these are all still just the standards that come with the internet as it is right now. Yes. Let alone the fact that we're now plugging a thermostat into it and communicating, trying to get to your iPhone to make sense of it. Yeah, this is at the atomic level. Wow. This All is right. this is everything kind of does this stuff. Everything uses IP. Not everything uses TCP, though. So there's this other thing called UDP. You could also call it UDP IP. Of course. So this is like um, if you want to get something somewhere fast, you would use UDP IP because TCP Although it's optimized for accurate delivery, it's not necessarily guaranteed to have timely delivery. So if you've ever loaded a web page or, or something and it's just taken longer than usual to come through, it's because stuff is working behind the scenes to make sure that it gets to you whole, complete. Complete. So they're prioritizing 
a good experience over a timely experience. That's right. So TCP, for example, will make sure that the packets actually got there. Um, IP will do its best effort delivery. TCP will check to make sure the stuff got there. If not, it will resend. And this is why we then needed to create UDP IP. Yes, UDP IP is optimized for low overhead operation for as little latency as possible. But error checking, delivery validation, out the window. I like to call this spray and pray. Spray and pray. You are literally spraying a stream of packets out the window and you're praying that it gets there. Wow. So out of these three protocols, TCP sounds like the most uh, useful if it's important that the entire picture gets to where it needs to be. Absolutely. And in fact, most things are based on TCP IP. Okay. But if you're doing video conferencing, things have to get there fast. Have you ever been using um, something like FaceTime and suddenly part of the person's face will like either not update or dissolve in a really kind of gross looking way or whatever. Absolutely. Freezing happens more often on our Freezing side too. But yes, no, the, the, the creepy, uh, half frozen. Right. Yes. No, I, I that that's not ha- happy. Yeah. <laughs> or you've been streaming video and suddenly that, you know, the person's torso will keep moving, but their legs stop. <laughs> nice. That's, so, that's all a function of UDP IP. And what you're seeing is you are seeing packet loss. Gotcha. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. But, uh, so what else is there? Well, then on top of TCP IP sits HTTP. And we've all heard of HTTP. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a core thing. It is the, um, the protocol of the internet. There's a lot more to it than people think. Um, How so? Well, for example, there's actually verbs, uh, meaning there's like different things you can do with a URL. Normally, when you're using a web browser, you just use one of those verbs, which is get. Um, but there is also put, delete, uh, update. So it's basically a, a variety of different calls, a, a different ways to control something. So when you're typing in a web address, you're using the get call. You're, yes. you're telling HTTP, I want you to bring this particular web address to my browser. Yes. But and you can use it for quite a bit of other things. There's an important standard called REST. And the standards that I've talked about so far are all... Uh, de jour standards. Well, they seem like the foundational standards for the internet itself, which cannot be excluded from the internet of things. Yes, absolutely. And HTTP is definitely part of that. And now I feel like we're moving more into how do we connect things uh, themselves so they can communicate to each other on, on or using this highway of the internet through the f- initial set of protocols. Yeah, these are more like the cars on the highway. Yeah, okay. you know, We'll talk about the highway too. So we have HTTP. Sure. Normally we use that for web pages is how we as people use it. But it's also kind of um, behind the scenes a way that applications use services. So applications... Like, how would my toaster use it, for example? Your toaster would detect that it's on fire. Okay. It's a very valuable uh, aspect of my toaster. Yes. Uh, future toasters will detect that they're on fire and they will tell you or I, tell something. I was probably going to go more with my bagel is perfectly cooked, but, but telling me it's on fire <laughs> sure. is also very, very useful. No, cooked and done is also a, a good, good way to go. Charles um, just had to go down the... <laughs> 
worst case scenario reason that my toaster yeah. has to be smart, but it's okay. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of reasons a toaster has to be smart. Okay. So, so tell me toaster, how are, how are you, how is my toaster going to tell me it's on fire? The reason that, um, these standards come into play there is that they're going to be talking to services and things like IP and things like TCP are happening at a very, very low level. On a slightly higher level, you have HTTP. And then on top of that, there's a very popular way for um, anything to talk to a web service called REST, which layers on top of HTTP. And REST is um, where these other parts of this core internet protocol suite are du jour standards created by standards committees. Uh, they're formal, they're recognized. REST is a de facto standard. It was just kind of created by people by leveraging HTTP for communication and using a standard called JSON to package up data and messages. Well, REST, uh, some of our listeners may have heard of REST API. Exactly. And so so it, it almost feels like REST needed to be created because the innovators we're trying to make things more sophisticated, trying to send just the information they wanted uh, the way they wanted it, and that the protocols established by the industry just didn't give them the flexibility to be as innovative as they wanted to be. Yeah, the other way that people used to talk to services are through really heavyweight protocols that would take a long time to learn. Um, they were really hard to use. Um, software to support them came along very late. And REST is just very simple. So, yeah. for example, if you want to get information about a user, it might be as simple as, as calling like domain.com slash user slash their ID and doing a get on that to get back all the information about that user. And then if for some reason the user leaves uh, the system, it might be easy, as easy as sending the delete verb to that same URI. I feel like REST is a really good example of how how the culture of innovation, the technocracy that other people have called it, um, shows that the most innovative people are going to push the standards and create anything that needs to be created to make their visions a reality. And REST just seems to be one of those things that came from it. And with the Internet of Things, um, although there are governing bodies that we've mentioned thus far, probably a lot of the standards are going to come from the innovators themselves that are creating things because they want to push the limits of what's existing and they want to be able to send the information that's relevant uh, in a timely way and yeah. make it easy. I mean, if things take forever for you to send one little bit of data to somebody else, then uh, you've just wasted a whole lot of coding time that you could be using on creating the next nest. Yeah, absolutely. Your rest is very simple. So if your toaster wants to um, talk to a service, uh, for example, you could call the rest based API for Twitter and it could tweet, help. <laughs> I don't know what, I, maybe Twitter's the wrong thing to send a help message to. Well, you know, we, we already have a house that tweets, right? We have a house that tweets, and that's exactly what um, the owner of that house is doing. He's yep. calling the uh, Twitter API through, this, through their REST-based API. All these devices will do something similar. And you, you see this REST API coming up a lot in the wearable market. So all of these watches and... Uh, clips and uh, headbands and shirts and everything that that's being created in this market, all they they all now feel this pressure to have some sort of open API um, that uses the REST port protocol to 
allow you access to their data. It seems to be that it, that at least has become a really strong standard. Yeah. It's important to provide an API because without an API, it, it's a signal that you're, um, you don't play well with others. Ooh, that's not good. That's in, bad. Yeah, I, I think that's been one really impressive thing with the innovators, especially in the digital age, is that open source just, I think, blew the minds of every traditional person out there that couldn't understand how you'd want to create something in a collective. And um, But we've shown so much amazing progress with getting people to collaborate effectively and, um, you know, really collecting the the smartest of the smart across a large population and putting it all together. Um, so I, you know, that that's really the impressive thing. And, and I think rest is a really good example of that. Yeah. I mean, the standards conversation is, is ultimately not a conversation about standards, but it is a conversation about what you need to do to be relevant in the world today. So if you're going to create some sort of API and you're not using rest, um, if you're, if you kind of shun that, or if you, for example, create libraries that work with your product and they're not open source, that's a really strong signal that you're really not serious about participating in the Internet of Things. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So so what else are the major players in this particular world of standards for the Internet of Things? Coming up to REST, I think we cover the core Internet standards that you need to be aware of for the Internet of Things. But those are all kind of talking about the cars on the highway. Those are all talking about data and how you send it from one place to another. And of course, sure. it's a rabbit hole. So you can go down those and learn more about those protocols and you can, you know, be in that for weeks. But but it's good that we started with a base foundation um, as an instruction and, and without acknowledging the history and the foundation that already exists. I think the these new players in the game that have really started to try and uh, make better waves into the internet of mm -hmm. things couldn't have existed for sure. Yeah. All right. Let's talk for a little bit about the highway. So we've talked about data. Yes. We've, we've talked about the protocols that allow us to get it from here to there. Yep. Um, but let's talk about the thing that that data rides on. Okay. Specifically, let's talk about wireless protocols or RF protocols, radio frequency protocols. So basically how something that isn't directly wired into my internet will then still be able to connect or transmit information to something else that's yeah, not I mean, directly we're, connected we're to. We're familiar with Ethernet, but yes. when it comes to the Internet of Things world, it's wireless. And with wireless, things aren't quite so simple. No, no. It, it, especially, it's particularly challenging to keep the integrity of the data, I would think, uh, when you're trying to go wireless. And to know about distance and battery life. Those two seem to be big ones that keep coming up, at least in the in the wearable world, in the health world, uh, trying to make the most of those things. But um, specifically, how do you make uh, wireless work? And Generally, you have some trade-offs between um, how much data you can transmit, how fast, and how much power that takes. And so to solve this, there's actually multiple standards. So the one that we're probably all most familiar with is Wi-Fi. High bit rate. High power, meaning it takes a lot of power, but it can go a pretty long distance. So Wi-Fi, I mean, basically, that's why when you buy your home wireless router, it has to be plugged into a wall and it has to be directly connected into the Ethernet. But that then can get you a decent amount of square footage. Yeah. And by high power, it's relative. So your phone can also act as a, a Wi-Fi base station. 
but the distance uh, for how far that Wi-Fi goes is significantly less than your home router. It is less, yeah, for sure. But but even so, I'm even splitting hairs even more. When I say high power, I mean that if you want to make something the size of a coin, it's not going to be using Wi-Fi. Okay. Period. So the second generation um, 802.11ac routers is the kind of current lead for that standard. Uh, does about 30 megabytes per second or about 240 megabits per second in real world scenarios. So think of Wi-Fi as an Ethernet replacement. But it takes quite a bit of power sure. to get that kind of performance. Sure. And that's all good. When you're talking about the different sizes, I, I think this is where a lot of the companies creating uh, the the Internet of Things and and debating how much size do I have in this thing in a toaster for example, uh, how much space do I have? How much real estate? Uh, and what's my power source? Um, but also, isn't it have to do with how large the packets of data are? How much data is actually relevant to send? Because that could also influence your choice when building the next thing for the Internet of Things, uh, which protocol you're going to use when it comes to wireless. Absolutely. If you're going to be, you know, if you want to transmit a high def movie out of something the size of a quarter... You just give up. There's there's no kind of combination of technologies that will do that for you. Not right now. No. Yeah, there, in the future, everything's relative. I mean, if you talk about early Wi-Fi, today's Wi-Fi is 100 times faster and easily. That's amazing. Yeah, a lot of progress has been made. But still, um, we need multiple standards to cover multiple scenarios. So Wi-Fi has its limitations, um, but it definitely has its benefits as well. What, what are my other options? Well, let's come back to the toaster example. Okay. So the toaster thing, the toaster is plugged in. Right. Um, it doesn't necessarily matter how much data it's transmitting. It's not transmitting a lot of data. Well, there's not a lot of data. Um, at least my toaster, I could all I could think of is it, your, your food's done or it's not, I'm guessing right. would be the, the data. You're just transmitting little messages. Right. It, it's not taking scans of your bagel. No. And sending live video I, of I, the toasting process. I guess it could, but I... <laughs> if I, it were, <laughs> Wi-Fi would be great. And because it's plugged in, and because you have uh, quite a bit of room relative to something the size of a quarter, right? Uh, Wi-Fi would be perfectly fine. So then Wi-Fi would be the relevant uh, choice if I wanted to stream Hulu on my toaster. Yes. Okay. <laughs> if, if you wanted to print uh, a movie... To successive slices of toast. That would be perfect. I I love that. Let's make that. That's going to be our next Internet of Uh, Things. All right. Sounds good. Um, Complementing Wi-Fi in in most scenarios is Bluetooth. Bluetooth. That's the the one that uh, connects your phone to your car and your laptop uh, keyboard to your laptop. And yeah, Bluetooth's been around for a little while now, hasn't it? It has, and, and we've all kind of suffered people coming into Starbucks wearing their Bluetooth headset and, and not listening to what the barista is trying to get. Yes, from one them. of those ones where you see people walking down the street and you have to double take because you're not quite sure if they're talking to themselves because they're crazy or because they have the Bluetooth on. Yeah, or both. Or both. It's, true. <laughs> it's hard to tell. Okay, so back on topic. Back what? on topic. It's low bit rate, um, short distance. So those things both sound terrible, obviously, but low power. Ooh. That's the key. It's up to 24 megabits per second, so it's reasonably slow compared to Wi-Fi. But think USB replacement. 
So Bluetooth is a USB replacement in that I used to have to plug my mouse into my computer. Exactly. And now it can free float like it's amazing own thing. Yeah, it's perfect for those scenarios. We've cut the cord. It's free. Yep. Okay. So what else is uh, good about Bluetooth? It's great because it's, um, as you mentioned, relatively low power, but over time it's also gained some interesting variations. Ooh. One of the most interesting is Bluetooth Low Energy, which I know you love. I do. Also called Bluetooth Smart. Okay. Which I did not realize. So whoever's marketing that term is terrible. Right. At it. I have actually never heard that one. Many people may not know why it's called Bluetooth, and the story's kind of fun. So the, the guy who made it, he okay. was inventing this new standard that would allow mobile phones to communicate with computers originally. Oh, which that's at the time, clever. Yeah, which at the time was a really revolutionary thing. Sure. Um, he was reading a novel about Vikings, a historical novel called The Long Ships, and how King Harold Bluetooth decided to unite the Danish tribes into a single kingdom. And he thought, my God, I'm trying to unite universal communications protocols in the same way that King Bluetooth united the Danish tribes. And so I will call it Bluetooth in honor of King Bluetooth. That is a beautiful story. Does that mean that the author of Longship should be claiming some sort of copyright? I, I guess if there's any descendants of King Bluetooth, they should be suing, but I think they're fine with it, probably. In fact, it's kind of an honor for the king because, you know that strange little Bluetooth symbol? Mm -hmm. It's actually a ligature of two runes that represent King Bluetooth's initials. No way. Yeah, so it's kind of an, an honor, I so guess. So we're using, essentially, King Bluetooth's coat of arms as our representation of Bluetooth. Sort of. The, we're, we're using the runes that, that made up his name in the original Scandinavian spelling, and that's kind of fun. That's really interesting. Yeah. So next time somebody invents a new protocol, go look through history for some obscure person that did something relevant and name it after it. Yeah, that seems product, to be the product way to naming go. is hard is the, my takeaway. Yeah, no, I like that though. That's that's a good story behind it. Bluetooth uh, was pretty awesome, but the the cool thing about um, Bluetooth and the Internet of Things is in 2001, Nokia was was trying to figure out um, how to fix effectively holes in Bluetooth. There were scenarios where it didn't really do its its thing. And their goal was to reduce power consumption, lower cost. And they were thinking of this as an entirely different thing. And in fact, they introduced this technology under the name of Wybri in 2006. Wybri. Yeah. So it wasn't, it's not compatible with, with classic, quote unquote, Bluetooth as we know it at all. And that effort to productize Wybri really didn't catch on at all. The good news for us is that it was merged into the main Bluetooth standard with the introduction of Bluetooth 4.0, also called Bluetooth Smart, in 2010. And in fact, the iPhone 4S was the first device in the world to incorporate this standard. Wow. So people think of Apple as fairly conservative when it comes to features, but in fact, they were incredibly forward-thinking. And Bluetooth Low, low Energy is uh, perfect for Internet of Things devices because it uses a tiny, tiny little bit of power to do its thing. Um, and it's just enough to transmit all sorts of uh, low bitrate data between the Internet of Things to each other, to phones. So most of the most of the things in the Internet of Things only need to do low bitrate data, small data. I mean, numerical data at most, uh, 
maybe code no images no videos none of that so so it sounds like a good idea but bluetooth itself started low power uh just not low power enough not low power enough the amount of energy that you have as part of your mobile phone is hundreds of times what some tiny devices have so for example if you have a key fob that has one of the little coin sized beacons on it that has a battery that you don't want to change very often like once a year if you have a lock on a door that has a battery that you don't want to touch more than once a year and to reach that kind of power consumption bluetooth low energy uh, is where it's at and it uses a fraction of the power as classic bluetooth and it really makes sense that it'd be a mobile phone company that was championing this because the amount of real estate you have in a phone is minimal at best. And it's minimal, but it's huge compared to some of these new things we're seeing. That's it's, true. it's huge compared to a Fitbit. It's huge compared to a coin sized uh, Bluetooth beacon. That's very true. That's very true. It seems the only way to, to make unobtrusive things around your house um, able to communicate effectively to the other things is uh, BLE probably is the the main standard, especially if you have limited real estate. Yes. If the thing isn't plugged in, if it's got to be small, um, if it doesn't need to transmit much data, Bluetooth uh, LE becomes a really appealing solution for that. So probably the uh, the dog collar that tracks your dog, the tennis racket that uh, tracks how well you're swinging the racket. All of those would be good examples of uh, key places where it couldn't exist without BLE. The tennis racket is a perfect example of that. You know, you have your phone on you or near you. It can either sync up while you're playing or afterward. The That's Fitbit amazing. is another perfect example. You create a virtual coach right there uh, on your tennis swing. Absolutely. You, you actually don't need to hire a coach anymore. Yeah, we'll see how that works. <laughs> we'll see how, how quickly professional tennis players jettison their coaches in favor of smart rackets. Okay. For the dog collar, though, then we started getting into wide area network wireless standards. So why is the dog collar needing wide area network standards? Because when really? Fido is far, far away, Ooh. when Fido has crossed... To the other side of the tracks. Okay, so run away. If, yeah, if he's not anywhere near your phone, if he's not within, you know, 20 yeah. feet, 50 feet of your phone, right. it's a problem. Right, definitely. Then then this would absolutely would not work as a solution. Yep, so that's when we start getting into wide area network standards. Uh, you may have heard of 4G LTE. Yes, that seems to be what everybody's touting on the commercials for their cell phones that yeah. doesn't actually work very well. No, it works great. Oh my gosh. No, I've I, had terrible, really? terrible luck with my service provider. Who's your carrier? We'll bleep I, it out. I, I can't tell you that. No, we'll bleep it. No, it's fine. <laughs> tell me later. All right. Sorry. Um, not to take us off. But yes, the 4G seems to be the big selling point for all the cell phone companies. Uh, so yes, tell us more about what these Gs mean and why they're important. Well, 4G is obviously one better than, than 3G. One would think. So it's one better. Right. Um, it's so, all relative. Supposedly it means fourth generation mobile communications technology standard. So then at some point there was a 1G and a 2G. There were way more. Than 4G. It's, it's so confusing. So, oh, so in the beginning, there was 1G and no one in called it that. In the beginning. Yeah. And no one called it that because... It was the first. It was the G. Okay, the only G. The only G. These were the old analog systems. You could actually transmit stuff digitally over them, but it would use a modem. Are you old a enough? Modem? Are you young? What? Are you old enough to remember modems? Well, I, everyone 
remembers that wonderful sound when you used to have to connect up to like Prodigy. Yes. And it was the same thing. So you could transmit digital information over these old analog I would probably be very upset if my dog's collar made that noise on a regular basis. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I would hope so. Um, So 1G was modems. 1G was analog. And then if you wanted to transmit digital information, you were doing it with modems. Okay. 2G um, actually supported digital communication. This was um, GSM overseas. In the States, it was something called D-Amps and an early version of Qualcomm CDMA. And the nice thing is that it could do digital communication, but it was a it was a call-like experience. In other words, you had to intentionally connect, transmit your data, and then disconnect. So nothing was passive. Nothing was passive. It was all very intentional. The speeds were uh, up to 14.4 kilobits per second. It was kind of a hack, kind of a novelty. It was terrible. And also not at all conducive for anything in the Internet of Things where we expect it more to passively and seamlessly communicate to everything else I need it to. Yes. No, if you were hoping for an always-on experience, uh, it just wouldn't be affordable. It wouldn't be practical. And uh, it really could not have happened. Okay. There was a 2.5G... Again, these are as much marketing terms as technical terms, if not more so. What happened is people made some additions that made GSM data better. But uh, the nice thing about this quote-unquote 2.5G is that it was the first time that there was sort of an always-on data. Very low bit rate. So almost like that would be the first mild iteration of a standard that could be viable for the Internet of Things. Absolutely. And in fact, I believe that's the standard that the uh, iPhone 1 supported. Wow. So it supported this GPRS thing. And if you were on a CDMA network like Verizon, it was called 1XRTT would be sort of the equivalent. When we get to 2.5G, we get to um, some enhanced data rates, and those are all good things. The 3G days were crazy. Crazy. Everyone was trying to figure out how to own the next generation ah, of the wireless next data. Wild, wild west of innovation in the internet. I it was love nuts. It. Yeah, it was crazy. There was uh, 3.5G and 3.75G standards being bandied about. And these were different versions of uh, CDMA's EVDO. And these were uh, wow, HSDPA you're... additions to UTMS. It was a, it was a jumble of acronyms that yeah. just drove you crazy. You're a little acronym crazy right now, I gotta tell you. <laughs> I'll try to come down. We don't know what any of those things are. In the 4G days, though, thank goodness, uh, people got a little bit more rational. There was some unification of standards so that the entire world wasn't uh, you know, trying to run networks on a million different standards. Uh, we, we settled on 4G LTE. The beautiful thing is, if you look at the various networks, what you get for download and upload speeds, it's quite good. So, for example, we're talking anywhere from 10 megabits per second download. We're talking in the area of six or seven megabits per second upload. Those are speeds that are, you know, a, a good fraction of what you can get at home with a cable modem. So what would that mean uh, for transmitting uh, a movie versus just a small bit of data from my toaster? The nice thing is that you could actually watch a movie from your device. You could actually stream a movie to your device for the first time. It's not practical because the pricing model is still excessive. It's it's not an all you can eat model. So they haven't figured that out. It's very it's still fairly consumer hostile. Everyone's very worried about the capacity of their network. They're worried about people going out of control and downloading everything to their phones. 
So we that's are a very a, spoiled generation. It's true. We're super spoiled. Uh, for the Internet of Things, as you know, because they generally have to transmit very little data, the important thing about these new standards is the always-on aspect and the fact that they're um, kind of spreading means that this reliable, very high bitrate access is becoming ubiquitous. Bringing it back to the dog collar or probably more relevant would be some sort of mobile heart monitor. Mm -hmm. At what point in this evolution of of G's, of different generations of um, wide area networks, when do you think that could have actually become more of a reality where you could be out on a safari on hiking or out to lunch and this thing would be constantly transmitting data back to your doctor? You know, in a lot of in a lot of situations, it was practical as early as 2.5 G. Wow. Because of the always on experience. Actually, back in those days, for some um, applications, they were actually starting to do um, sensors that would live out in the field and that would talk to home base through these 2.5 G networks. So those things have existed. But the ubiquity, part of the ubiquity is for the coverage to get uh, more useful, to get more universal. In many parts of the country, uh, you don't have 4G, you still have 3G. And so for the foreseeable future, you'll have 4G in densely populated areas. You'll have 3G out in the boonies. And that will be the case for probably a decade. Wow. Even as you know, new, new generations of technologies come online. A lot of the cell phone carriers are talking about how they need to upgrade their networks to be able to access 4G. But uh, what are the chances that by the time they figure out how to get everyone 4G, we've got a 5G? That will happen, and they'll just maintain the separate networks forever. Yeah. You know, um, even if 4G becomes ubiquitous, and they eventually replace that 3G equipment out in the boonies with 4G equipment because the 3G equipment dies, you'll still need to maintain um, separate technologies. And so phones, for the foreseeable future, will actually have multiple um, support for multiple networks, as will some Internet of Things devices. Well, there are some discussions, um, I would I was hearing from a couple different Internet of Things manufacturers about cutting deals to use these older networks for their small bitrate data. So the 4G still sticks to your phone so you can watch your daily show on your cell phone while you're waiting in jury duty. Um, But your heart monitor, yeah, could could entirely function on the 2.5G as long as it's still or 3G. Or, or any network that they have that's not relevant for the actual cell phones to, to be on. Yes, that's a perfect point. The dog collar has no reason to be on 4G LTE. So this uh, interesting little evolution, too, from 2.5 to 4G um, actually reminds me a bit of the evolution of the Internet of Things, that we're, we're kind of in that wild, wild west phase and uh, we're willing to tolerate it for a little bit, but now that we're actually expecting these things to be much more ubiquitous in our lives and, and that we'll actually start having smart things everywhere and 500 billion different bits of data coming through from 10,000 wired or wireless things in my home, are we eventually going to have to just dictate this is our 4G version of a standard for the Internet of Things and this is how we're, things are going to be connected? I mean, it's a great point. All these things will have wireless and they will, in many cases, have access to cellular networks, wide area networks. And right now, the pricing model is completely broken. I mean, if I want to add something else to the um, to my cellular plan, it's 10 to 20 dollars before I even use any data, which is crazy. So we're going to have hundreds of these devices. Uh, The carriers need to come up with a plan that works for everything that you own. 
Well, now it seems that the burden's more on the manufacturer of the thing that uh, gets added to our internet of things. Well, they're, I mean, that's the way they need to do it to sell the device. Right. Because if I had to buy a device and I had to pay an extra 20 bucks a month. To, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. And, and Verizon honestly doesn't deserve 20 bucks a month for something that transmits a few bytes an hour. Right. It just doesn't work. The economics aren't, aren't there yet. So as uh, every week, there's a new article about some major uh, contract written with Verizon or AT&T or whatever that that we're just going to borrow just a very small bit of their uh, network Mm -hmm. so that we can connect whatever we want to connect to it. Well, the Amazon model is great. So WhisperNet Mm -hmm. is the Kindle model and Amazon takes care of (laughs) how that works. And presumably they're paying the underlying network provider uh, a fee for that ubiquitous access. And it's the only way that I think the Kindle could have been moderately competitive. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, they've switched carriers along the way. So I believe they started with Sprint. I don't think they're using Sprint anymore, but that's all hidden from the folks that are using it, which thank goodness, if you're going to try to uh, you know, entice uh, someone who's been reading books their entire life and maybe isn't technology savvy, into buying a Kindle, that just has to be magic. Well, I think that, though, is a rule for all the Internet of Things. There's so many uh, things that need to be connected, that Absolutely. need to be smart. And I think the only way to do it is to make it uh, stupidly simple yeah. for the general consumer. I think people don't actually want to know that this thing is connecting or how it works or what data is transmitting. I mean, they want to know from a privacy and security perspective, but they don't really care how it happens. Yeah. Amen. And so if you can just buy something off the shelf and it'll talk to your phone and it'll talk to whatever web portal you need it to and Mm -hmm. it'll analyze the data, then you are good and happy. Yeah. So let's talk about home automation standards for a few minutes. Well, it does seem the way seems to be the way that the Internet of Things is really catching a foothold is everybody is really interested in this. I want my home to be smart and I want my home to, to take care of things for me and always be the perfect temperature. So it makes sense that that's the first place that they'd really start developing some standards. There's kind of been a co-evolution between these home automation wireless standards and everything else that's happening. Okay. And we'll talk about some of the interesting implications of that after I, after I touch on these, but the top three are really, in my opinion, Zigbee, Z-Wave and Insteon. I love the names. Yeah, they're they're Nobody. nice. The like Zigbee um, supposedly refers to the the wiggle waggle dance of honeybees after their return to the beehive. Uh, I feel like we could do a podcast solely on the crazy names of all these places. But so tell us a bit about <laughs> Zigbee. Yeah, well, these are designed as as very low cost, very low power network standards. Very similar, in fact, to Bluetooth. So now why was Zigbee created then instead of just using uh, BLE? Because it didn't exist. And that's oh. the only reason. But but now the question is, do we need Zigbee? Ooh. Do we need Z-Wave? Wow. So they're older than BLE, but are they older than Bluetooth? In many cases, they're, I, I think, kind of the same generation. A lot of people okay. had the same kind of theory that devices were going to need to to communicate wirelessly. Sure. We, we did talk about that in our very first podcast that the idea was presented, you know, over a decade ago. So this has definitely been on the minds of some very smart people for a very long time. Absolutely. And, and I guess the interesting thing about the home automation wireless standards is that um, they are mesh networking standards. So what does that mean? How is that different than uh, 
than direct connection that we've been talking about those so far. So with Bluetooth, if you are 50 feet away from uh, the device that you want to communicate with, you're screwed. That's it. Just screwed. You're That's screwed. It. All Thank right. you. Okay. So how um, is Zigbee different? In the wireless, with a wireless mesh network, devices can actually piggyback on top of other devices. So for example, if your lamp wants to talk to some other device, but it's too far away, as long as there's an intermediate device in the middle that it can talk to via that device, it will work. So it's almost like a like a technological digital game of leapfrog. Exactly. So in that respect, then, does it make more sense that you buy a whole bunch of things that are connected in your home? Yes. Rather than just one thing at yes. a time. Yes, consume. There we go. Yeah. That seems like, but that sounds brilliant because it... Mesh networks are wonderful. So in because it's a mesh network, mm-hmm. does that in your mind mean that it would stick around regardless of BLE? It might. But the, the nice thing about Bluetooth is that it is extensible. Okay. It's certainly possible that someone could extend Bluetooth to support mesh networking type features. Cool. So, so what else is a benefit of uh, Zigbee in this mesh wireless network? That's really the primary benefit to me. I mean, once you start splitting hairs and getting into the fine details of each, for example, some folks tout that their protocol is better for large corporate scenarios. Ooh. Some people claim that because of things like automatic configuration, they're better for home networks. But honestly, these are problems that are solvable with software. From my point of view, they're almost interchangeable. With Zigbee, it's based on an IEEE uh, standard, which to me is a strength versus Z-Wave and wireless. Z-Wave is controlled by one company, Insteon is as well. You already mentioned that Zigbee is used in the Nest thermostat and the Philips Hue light bulb. Uh-huh. So it makes sense that it kind of becomes more of an accepted standard. Uh, Z-Wave and Insteon being proprietary, one company driven could be their downfall, do you think? Well, and even Zigbee, I don't, I don't know that anyone loves Zigbee. Really? Yeah. Why is that? It's just yet another chipset to have on a device. It's yet another uh, RF standard to support. So basically when I'm building my smart thing, my internet of thing thing, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to have to make a choice with, when it comes to real estate. And if it comes with, I either put in a BLE chip or a Zigbee chip, uh, it depends. I'd probably lean towards BLE, you think? I think you'd lead toward Bluetooth because it solves a bunch of problems. And the chips are so ubiquitous that they're extremely cheap. I mean, every phone in the world has Bluetooth. That kind of volume is not something that Zigbee can approach. Yeah, wow. So why are there even, what, like Insteon, why is that in the market at all? Where'd Insteon that come from? was originally a successor to X10. It was a standard for an early home automation standard that would allow devices to talk to other devices over the home power line network. Ooh, that sounds like the very first iteration of smart things. Yeah, and in fact, Insteon devices can still work with X10 devices. And so it was a natural path for people that had a really built up X10 network to migrate to something that also did wireless. So Insteon is kind of like that first experimental phase of the Internet of Things where we don't quite have the technology yet to connect it wirelessly through a smart way. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, build this thing, test some stuff out, take out our learnings. And so we're probably now on the, you know, multiple generations later. But that Insteon step had to happen for us to at least get 
our feet wet in this new internet of things. Yeah, I mean, they, they pioneered, uh, I think they pioneered a lot of stuff between X10 and Insteon in the sense that all the people that were really interested in the stuff, you know, were using X10 to control lights, uh, to connect things together. There wasn't so much a compute capability. So, for example, in our definition, we talk about the Internet of Standards having a compute component, and that really wasn't a factor in these devices. So although these provide the data pathways, they don't really dictate what the devices are like or how they behave. Sure. Um, and the standards on how to do that, there's a lot of interoperability challenges, even with things like Zigbee today, that are really unfortunate. They're, they're preventing consumer adoption. Um, oh, that's really tough. Yeah, you can't guarantee the two you know, Zigbee devices will work together. Oh, well, that just doesn't even make sense as it's, a standard. I feel like that would be one of the core definitions of the standard. At the very least, my stuff will talk to my stuff. If my stuff doesn't even talk to my stuff, sure. it's not really a standard. Well, it's, it's hard because they're coming out with new kinds of devices. And so how does a device talk to another device that it, it doesn't really even know what it does, oh, much less what should be controlled? Sure, or or understands the data. So great that you've connected a phone line between two people, but they don't speak the same language. Exactly. Yeah. It's what we'll talk about in future standards conversations. Some of these higher order, more evolved standards. How do you not just install that phone line so two people can talk? How do you create the translator so that they'll make sense to each other? Right. And I think that's that's kind of the core reason we felt it was important to create a standards episode at all. Um, when you have the compute, connect, communicate as the three rules of the Internet of Things, uh, standards help us talk to each other. I mean, you can't communicate if there's no common language, if there's no way to get that communication out. And that being a challenge within itself. That's right. Gets us into standards. Exactly. Standards are crucial to uh, this industry flourishing. And so hopefully this overview of kind of the basic standards of the Internet of Things was helpful. We would love to hear from you guys, by the way. Thank you to all of our early listeners. We really appreciate the great reviews on iTunes. Yep. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Far Stuff, the Internet of Things podcast. You can find us on the internet at farstuff.com and at farstuff on Twitter. Get in touch with us using the contact form at farstuff.com or email us at podcast at farstuff.com. And this brings us to the end of our thing. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. LTE? Yeah, BTLE. The BLT standard is one of my favorite sandwich standards. <laughs> it is. We're fine. I know we are. I'm not worried. Okay. Dang it, I can't talk today. <laughs> That's not good because we're recording a podcast.